It's April 28, 1908. In Laporte, Indiana, dawn is creeping over the valleys. Any second now, the black night sky will fade to a pale blue. But today, something about the morning landscape doesn't look right. It's burning a deep red, and bright shades of orange, crimson, and yellow glow dangerously in the pre-dawn light. Hundreds of feet below, a farmhouse is on fire. It's being consumed by unstoppable flames and dark, smoky clouds encircle the smoldering building. Tragically, this is the home of a local family, the Gunnesses. A wealthy widow, Belle Gunness, lives here with her three young children. Outside the house, men and women are trying everything to wake up the family. They're throwing bricks through the windows, kicking down doors, yelling and screaming at the tops of their voices. But it's all in vain. Somehow, the children and their mother are deaf to the carnage taking place around them. As the minutes pass, the burning flames continue to lick through the old farmhouse, eventually reducing it to a pile of rubble and ash. With the house burned to the ground, the flames soon falter and die. Volunteers rush toward what's left of the building, picking through the wreckage in the desperate hope of finding some survivors. When they get inside, they're met with a heartbreaking sight. In the basement are the bodies of four individuals. The three smaller bodies are instantly recognized as the Gunnis children so volunteers expect the larger corpse will be their mother, Belle. Or will it? There's something strange about the fourth body, something which makes identification virtually impossible and turns the fire into a murder investigation. The neck has been brutally hacked apart and the head cut off. Although volunteers frantically search around, the missing head is nowhere to be seen. After taking a closer look at the body, friends and neighbors insist that it's not Belle Gunnis. She was a tall, muscular woman who reached almost six feet in height. The headless body, in contrast, is small and thin and can have only measured around five feet. This discovery opens up hundreds of disturbing questions. Who killed this woman and hid her head? Why did they murder her? And if the dead woman isn't Belle Gunnis, then where is Belle now? There's just one man who has the answers, but almost two more years will pass until a retired farmhand confesses the horrifying truths on his deathbed. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Belle Gunnis, a woman who appeared to be plagued by tragedy. It's about her hunger for money and the ruthless measures she took to make her fortune. It's about the scores of unlucky men who visited Belle's house and mysteriously vanished forever. The horrifying discoveries made on her farm and the final words of her jealous, love-struck employee that led to one of America's most famous horror stories. I'm Estefania Haigman, 
And this is Deathbed Confessions. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh. How so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit, or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. Belle is born in a Norwegian town called Selbu in 1859. She's the daughter of a stonemason and the youngest of eight children. Her childhood seems to be an unhappy one. So when her older sister moves to America, Belle is desperate to leave her family home and follow. However, before she's old enough to sail alone across the world, some reports state that tragedy strikes the young girl. In 1877, when she's 18 years old and pregnant with her first child, Belle is attacked at a country dance. The male assailant is never caught or charged, and Belle's left to suffer on her own. It's not clear where the father of her baby is. Sadly, the attack causes her to miscarry her unborn child. Several sources pinpoint this moment as Belle's transformation it allegedly fills her with a lifelong sense of bitterness and resentment towards all men. In 1881, when she's 21 years old, Belle finally sets sail for America. She chooses to move to Chicago, where there's already an established population of Norwegian immigrants. But Belle hasn't traveled over 3,000 miles to settle down and lead an ordinary life she plans to create her own American fortune by whatever means possible. It's now 1887. Since moving to Chicago six years ago, Belle has adapted well to the American way of life. She's married to a fellow Norwegian, Mad Sorensen, and together 
the husband and wife run their own candy store. Although their shop doesn't enjoy much financial success, it's enough to pay the bills and the couple seem to be happy together. Around this time, Belle and Mads adopt a young girl called Jenny Olson. The two appear to be natural parents and perhaps hope to bring children of their own into the world one day. However, Belle's life in America is destined for tragedy and the first of many disasters is about to take place. It's not clear when exactly, but at some point during 1887, while the family candy store was deserted, it burned down. The fire destroys everything Belle and her husband have worked so hard to build. Their business, property, and way of life are reduced to ash. The only silver lining is the fact that the candy store was insured. This means that Belle and Mads receive a healthy payout from their insurance company. In fact, they're paid far more than their unsuccessful shop would have ever earned them. Belle insists this is just good luck, but others around her are skeptical. Was the candy store fire really an accident? Or did they burn it down themselves to get rich quick? In the years that follow the fire, life for Belle and her family continues peacefully. They move away from the candy store and into a small house in the city. Here, her husband opens up another shop. It's not clear what type and hopes this business will be more successful than the last. Settled in their new home, Belle and her husband welcome four more children to the family, Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. Reports differ as to whether they're adopted or if they're Belle and Mad's biological children. Sadly, Caroline and Axel don't make it through infancy and die from acute colitis when they're just weeks old. Strangely though, their symptoms are identical to those of poisoning, nausea, fevers, and lower abdominal pains. Coroners may have noticed the similarities, but believed it to be no more than an unfortunate coincidence. Acute colitis is fairly common in infants, so they rule the deaths as natural. You might think that after a devastating fire and the deaths of two babies, the family's tragedies would be over. You'd be wrong. On July 30th, 1900, Mad Sorensen arrives home complaining of a headache. He goes to his wife, Belle, for help, and she makes him a medicinal tea. But just moments later, Mads falls to the floor, dead. When the doctor arrives, he makes a worrying discovery. After examining Mads, he claims that he was poisoned by strychnine, a toxic liquid that causes respiratory failure and brain death. Belle insists this can't be the case. She assures police and doctors that she gave her husband some tea and quinine, an anti-malarial drug used to combat fevers. Next thing she knew, he was dead. She swears she didn't poison him. Keen to get a second professional opinion, police ask Belle's family doctor to examine Mad's body. Unlike the first doctor, he concludes that the cause of death was heart failure. This explanation seems far more likely than poisoning, as Mad suffered from a heart condition his whole life. And so, Failing to notice the links between Mad's death and those of his two young children, police accept the second conclusion 
and rule it as unsuspicious. However, there's something extremely strange about the date of Mad's death. On the day he died, July 30th, two of his insurance policies overlapped. His life insurance expired at the end of that day, while a new policy began just hours earlier. Due to these overlapping insurance plans, Belle is paid money from both policies. She's handed around $5,000 after her husband's sudden death, the equivalent of $150,000 in today's value. Interestingly, July 30th was the only day where Belle could receive this huge sum. His death is the second tragedy Belle has profited from, and it won't be long before people start to notice that misfortune follows and rewards her wherever she goes. Following the death of her husband, Belle leaves Chicago in 1901. She takes her three children, Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy, south to Indiana. Once there, Belle uses the large fortune from her husband's life insurance to buy an impressive 48-acre farm on the outskirts of Laporte. Although no longer a young woman by early 20th century standards, 41-year-old Belle is still considered to be attractive. With her long, shiny blonde hair, hourglass figure, not to mention her vast wealth, she has no trouble securing a second husband. In 1902, Belle marries a butcher named Peter Gunnis. It's perhaps the pair's similarities which draw them to one another. Both migrated to America from Norway, have been married once before, and already have children. Shortly after their wedding, Peter moves into Belle's farm with his baby daughter. The newlyweds find it easy to make friends in the vibrant neighborhood of Laporte. As a butcher, Peter's at the heart of the community and quickly becomes a popular member of the town. Meanwhile, neighbors treat Belle with a mixture of awe and fear. They watch her strut about the farm, effortlessly performing tasks they've only ever seen men complete. Belle has a kind of superhuman physical strength. She's seen picking up a 300-pound piano as though it weighs nothing. But she's friendly to everyone she meets, and Laporte is more than happy to welcome the Gunnesses into their community. However, it isn't long before strange things start happening on the Gunness farm. The first event occurs just weeks after the wedding, when Belle's husband is out. She's meant to be looking after Peter's young daughter, a baby girl from his first marriage. When Peter returns home in the evening, Belle informs him that his daughter has died. It's unclear whether the baby was already sick or if her death was entirely unexpected. Whatever explanation Belle gives is accepted by Peter, who trusts his wife and asks no more questions. However, this blind faith in Belle will prove to be a fatal error. It's now December, 1902. 14-year-old Jenny Olson, Belle's adopted daughter, is playing in her bedroom on the second floor of the Gunness farmhouse. Suddenly, she hears screams erupt from below her, so rushes downstairs to see what's going on. In the kitchen, a horrifying scene meets her eyes. Her stepfather, Peter Gunness, is lying on the floor, writhing in pain and clutching his bloody head. Next to Peter is a heavy sausage grinder. 
it looks as though the machine fell on him and crushed his head. Jenny's mother, Belle, is crouching over Peter. She's wailing uncontrollably, visibly distressed at the awful fate that's met her beloved husband. Jenny runs from the kitchen and returns within minutes, followed by the local doctor. But tragically, there's nothing anyone can do for Peter Gunnis. The head injury inflicted by the meat grinder is too severe. After just eight months of marriage, Peter Gunnis is dead. And Belle, a widow once more, is paid $4,000 from his life insurance. However, this latest tragedy doesn't pass without suspicion. For those who knew Peter, Belle's version of events doesn't make sense. She claims that Peter was reaching for an item on the top shelf when he accidentally knocked against the meat grinder, causing it to fall onto his head. But everyone remembers Peter as a careful and competent butcher, one who rarely caused any accidents. It's hard to believe he was clumsy enough to knock down a heavy machine. The second suspicious finding comes from the district coroner. When reviewing Peter's death, he initially speculates it was homicide. Based on Peter's injuries, it's possible that the coroner believes someone threw the meat grinder against Peter's head and beat him with it until he fell to the ground. Considering Belle's immense physical strength, this someone could have been her. But perhaps most worryingly of all, there's suspicion from within the Gunnis family. 14-year-old Jenny Olson doesn't believe a word of Belle's story and is heard whispering to her school friends. My mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat grinder and he died. Don't tell a soul. It seems as though the fingers of blame all point to Belle. Is the two-time widow in fact a murderer? They're responsible for some of the most horrifying acts of violence ever known. Men and women who went to lethal extremes. But why? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, follow the life and crimes of an actual murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers examines the psyche of a killer, their motives and targets, and law enforcement's pursuit to stop their spree. Listen now and catch our special series on manhunts, where we follow the processes police use as they hunt for murderers in treacherous terrains and unusual locations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. That's an extra 10% cashback on top of Big Give Week's 15% cashback. You won't see higher cashback rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. 
R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Due to the rumors swirling around about Belle Gunness' involvement in her husband's death, a coroner's jury is called together. Jenny Olson is brought before the jury and asked what she thinks happened to her adoptive father. But possibly scared her words will get back to Belle, Jenny changes the story she allegedly told friends. Now she claims that her stepfather's death was a freak accident and that her mother had nothing to do with it. When Belle is questioned, she convinces jurors that her version of events is the truth. So the jury rules Peter's death as an unfortunate accident and closes the case. However, following the sudden death of Peter, 14-year-old Jenny Olson mysteriously disappears. Neighbors miss seeing the young girl working on the farm, visiting their shops, or chatting to them at the market. But when they ask Belle where Jenny is, she claims her daughter has been sent to school in California. Eyebrows are raised, but no more questions asked. It will be just a matter of time until Laporte starts to realize exactly what's going on at the Gunness farm. It's now 1906. 47-year-old Belle Gunness has three children to look after, having given birth to a son shortly after her husband's death. However, as the only adult on her 48-acre farm, she's growing lonely. Belle is keen for another romantic relationship. She briefly dated her young farmhand, 30-year-old Ray Lamphere, but wants more. She's determined to find a wealthy man to be her third husband. So in early 1906, Belle publishes an advertisement in several Norwegian language papers. It aims to lure rich men onto her farm. The advertisement reads, Comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well-provided with view of joining fortunes. Almost at once, it generates a rush of responses and the Gunness Farm opens its doors to streams of wealthy male visitors. The first man to respond to Bell's writing is a middle-aged bachelor called John Moe. Curiously, John brings over $1,000 in cash with him during his first visit. It's believed that Bell's asked for this money in order to pay off her mortgage. When John arrives in Laporte, Bell warmly welcomes him and charms him with her graces. She shows him off to neighbors, introducing him as a distant cousin who's visiting from Norway. But the people of Laporte don't get a chance to become friendly with John. Just days after his arrival, he suddenly disappears. When Belle is asked where he's gone, she simply shrugs and claims he had to leave town early. This might seem like a reasonable excuse, but something about it doesn't sit right. Why would John Moe visit Belle's farm deposit money into her bank account, and then suddenly leave. Something strange is definitely going on. As it turns out, the arrival and disappearance of John Moe is just the start of what's to come. As the months pass, Belle continues placing personal ads in newspapers, selling herself as a wealthy widow looking for a new husband. One by one, rich, single men show up at the Gunness farm, their pockets bursting with cash for Belle, their hearts hoping to find love. But every time, 
neighbors get just a glimpse of the men before they mysteriously disappear without a trace. This suspicious pattern continues for almost a year. Eerily, while the men come and go, neighbors notice that Belle receives a number of wooden trunks. They watch the strong, muscular woman heave large wooden chests from the delivery van straight into her backyard. No one in the town wants to imagine what she's using these coffin-like boxes for. It's now January, 1907. Recently, Belle Gunnis has begun a remote relationship with a wealthy Norwegian-American man called Andrew Helgelian. Ever since their first letter, Andrew and Belle have been in constant communication. Andrew believes they're madly in love, so he writes to Belle on an almost daily basis. Belle reciprocates this affection, calling Andrew her dearest friend in the world. Belle writes, I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepare to stay forever. And so, drunk on the illusion of love, Andrew does just that. On January 3rd, 1908, he arrives at the Gunnis farm. At first, Andrew's visit follows the same pattern as the other men before him. He turns up at Bell's front door presenting a check for $2,900, his entire life savings. He accompanies Bell to the local bank and deposits the impressive check into her account. But then, just like the men before him, Andrew vanishes after a few days. No one heard him mention this abrupt departure or saw him leave the town. It seems as though yet another man has disappeared from the Gunnis farm. However, there's something different about Andrew Helgelian's disappearance. Unbeknown to Bell, he was extremely close to his brother, Asla Helgelian. And when Asla's letters go unanswered, he reaches out to Bell and demands to know what's going on. Keen to squash any rising suspicions, Bell swiftly responds to Asley. However, the answer she sends back is a lie. Bell bluntly informs Asley that Andrew isn't in Laporte. She claims to have no idea of his current whereabouts and proposes he moved back to Norway. This lie casts suspicion on Bell Gunnis. Asley knows his brother visited her farm and even gave her his money. If she's denying this, maybe it's because she has something to hide. While the neighbors, police, and even a coroner's jury have believed Belle's stories for years, Asla doesn't trust a word, she says. It's time to get to the bottom of what this mysterious, wealthy widow is up to. Back on the Gunnis farm, life is rapidly spiraling out of Belle's control. On the one hand, she's being bombarded by dangerous accusations from Asla Helgelian. Asla suspects that his brother was murdered by Belle Gunnis and is threatening to come to the farm and search for him himself. As if being accused of murder isn't bad enough, Belle is also having problems with her former boyfriend, Ray Lamphere. Ray has been hopelessly in love with Belle ever since he started work on her farm. He watched with envy as wealthy strangers were welcomed into Belle's house, one after the next, 
each promising a long and prosperous marriage for the widow. So when Bell grew tired of his jealousy and fired him in February 1908, Ray swore revenge. Now, the ex-farmhand haunts the land he once worked on. He shows up unexpectedly at Bell's front door, breaks in through the windows at night, skulks around the bushes, anything to get back into her life. Bell is quick to respond to his incessant stalking. On April 27, 1908, she visits her attorney in Laporte and claims that Ray is trying to kill her. That man is out to get me, she exclaims. I fear one of these nights he will burn my house to the ground. These worries drive her to hastily write a will where she leaves her entire fortune and estate to her three children. Although Belle's frantic actions may seem dramatic at first, her timing couldn't be any better. In less than 24 hours, Belle's sinister prediction will come true. It's April 28th, 1908. Although the day is still young, the men and women of Laporte are wide awake. News of the devastating fire at the Gunnis Farm has spread all through the county and made headlines in numerous Midwestern papers. It's even traveled to South Dakota and reached the ears of Asla Helgelian. Asla has been impatiently waiting for an opportunity to visit Bell's farm he's still suspicious about his brother's disappearance three months ago, so travels to Laporte in early May, 1908. When Asla arrives, he explains his concerns to the county sheriff. Perhaps recalling the strange activities that went on at the Gunnis farm, the sheriff agrees the situation is worrying and offers to take a look. Together, he and Asla speak to one of Bell's former employees. The farm worker furthers their suspicions. He admits that Bell often asked him to dig large holes around her farm. Holes large enough for human bodies. He leads the men to Bell's pig pen. It was here where he spent much of his time digging deep holes and covering them up at the request of Bell. The employee has no idea what she put in the holes, but the two men are about to find out. After a few minutes of digging through the soil, Asla's spade hits something soft. He reaches in and with the help of the others, pulls out a heavy, dirty brown sack. They carefully peel it apart and make a monstrous discovery. From inside the sack, Andrew Helgelian's head stares up at them. It's surrounded by his chopped off hands, feet, and dismembered body. Aslan must be disgusted and heartbroken. Whatever he feared had happened to his brother, surely it can't have been this. Unsure of what other horrors they're about to find, the men continue uncovering the soil. Over the next few days, hundreds of men and women from Laporte crowd the Gunnis farm. They wait with a mixture of nerves and twisted excitement to see what the police will find. Their discoveries are straight out of a horror film. Bell's pig pen turns out to be some sort of gory graveyard. Police find dozens of sacks containing severed arms, bones, and rotting human body parts. They estimate that a horrifying total of 40 deceased individuals 
have been carelessly buried here. Among those found are the remains of Jenny Olson, Belle's 14-year-old foster daughter and John Moe, the first suitor who visited her. Unfortunately, the extreme dismemberment makes it impossible to identify most of the victims. But police are fairly certain that every suitor who came to visit Belle met the same gruesome fate. News of Belle's hellish crimes dominate headlines around the country in the days that follow. Tabloids dub her the Black Widow, an Indiana ogress, and the mistress of the Castle of Death. It seems frighteningly obvious to everyone in Laporte that their neighbor was a serial killer. But with Belle either killed in the fire or mysteriously missing, key questions are left unanswerable. Why did Belle murder so many people? Did anyone help her in these gruesome tasks? And although three of the bodies have been recognized as her children, the fourth is unidentifiable. So who did it belong to? If Belle is still alive, there's no way of knowing where she is now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Although it's impossible to tell who started the fire, Laporte authorities have one suspect in mind, Ray Lamphere. Everyone in town had heard his plans of vengeance against Belle. So when the attorney explains that Bell feared Ray wanted to kill her and even made a last-minute will, there's a strong case against him. Ray is arrested soon after and put on trial for arson and murder on November 13, 1908. In the Indiana courtroom, prosecutors perhaps believe they'll have an easy job proving Ray's guilt. His unrequited love for Belle and fury that she refused his advances gave him textbook motives for murder. As well as these, the continued stalking, Bell's predictions about the fire, and the rush to make her will are surely evidence that he committed the crimes. With no other suspects, it's likely that Ray will be sentenced to death. However, to everyone's surprise, Ray's defense is strong. His lawyers base their entire argument around the possibility that Bell Gunnis might not be dead. You see, although the body of a woman was found in the fire, it isn't necessarily Bell's. As the corpse was headless, police had no way of accurately identifying it. It will be years before DNA testing is used effectively in police investigations, and fingerprint analysis is still in its infancy. Instead, police depend primarily on facial recognition during this period. As the lack of a head makes this impossible, 
they've had to rely on friends of Belle to try and identify her body. Almost everyone the police have asked has claimed the body isn't Belle's. The widow was tall, muscular, and physically intimidating. By contrast, the headless body is small and slim. If Belle wasn't harmed in the fire, then the case against Ray Lamphere falls apart. After two weeks in court, the jury finds Ray Lamphere guilty of arson, but innocent of murder. For his crime, he receives 20 years in prison. However, the story of Belle Gunnis isn't over yet. After just a few years behind bars, Ray Lamphere will answer the question Laporte is desperate to know. What exactly happened to the murderous widow? It's December 30th, 1909. Ray Lamphere is lying in his hospital bed in Indiana State Prison. After serving just one year of his 20-year sentence, he's been infected by tuberculosis and is dying. Standing next to his bedside is Reverend Shell. Ray has asked specifically for the Reverend as he approaches his final hours. This request is perhaps a chance at redemption. You see, Ray Lamphere is harboring a dark secret, one which is crippling him even more than the deadly disease. He knows what happened to Belle Gunnis. Mustering up all of his remaining strength, Ray beckons the Reverend closer. With sharp, painful breaths and a rasping whisper, he tells the twisted story of Belle Gunnis. The following is Ray Lamphere's deathbed confession. Ray begins by admitting that Belle Gunnis lured male suitors to her farm. She brought them there with the sole purpose of stealing their money and then murdering them. After welcoming the men into her home, Belle would either poison her victims at dinner, beat them to death, or suffocate them while they slept. As the wife of a butcher, Belle had numerous deadly tools at her disposal. So she'd lug the dead bodies into the basement and dissect them piece by piece. Then it was up to Ray to bury the bodies in the pig pen. He estimates that Belle accumulated more than $250,000 from her murderous schemes. The fortune would be worth over $8 million in today's value. Upon hearing this shocking confession, it's likely that Reverend Shell is deeply disturbed. Everyone in Laporte has had their suspicions about Belle, but Ray's story is the first time they've been confirmed. However, if the Reverend thinks he's heard enough, he's wrong. Ray has more to say. The ex-farmhand goes on to explain that Belle Gunnis planned the fire that burned down her house. Apparently, she was getting worried that people suspected her of murder and needed to make a quick escape. So she lured a young woman to her farm in the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper. Belle then killed the woman, chopped off her head, and threw it in a nearby swamp. She discarded the headless body in her basement where it would act as her decoy and convince everyone she had died. Finally, on the evening before the fire, Belle mercilessly suffocated her own children with chloroform. She carried their lifeless bodies down to the basement before setting her house alight. According to Ray, Belle didn't wait around to watch her house burn down. 
she fled town instantly, perhaps by boarding the next train or running through the dense woodland. With the entire town believing she had perished in the fire, Belle was free to start a new life. This is where Ray Lamphere concludes his story. He's still hopelessly in love with Belle and tells the Reverend sadly that he has no idea where she is now. All he knows is that the murderous widow is out there somewhere. Ray Lamphere dies in December 1909, just hours after giving his deathbed confession. But his dying words are far from the last anyone hears about Belle Gunnis. In the years immediately following the fire, the Sheriff of Laporte is inundated by stories about Belle. Each month, reports of alleged sightings flood his office, and people claim they know where Belle's hiding. Detectives are sent all over America to follow the leads. They search Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles. Every time, though, they're met with disappointment and fail to find the elusive widow. Then, in 1931, over 20 years since Belle disappeared, something incredible happens. In Los Angeles, police arrest an American woman who's been caught poisoning a Norwegian man. She was also found trying to steal his money. The guilty woman claims her name is Esther Carlson, but her photo bears a striking resemblance to Belle Gunnis. In her possession, police find portraits of two children who look just like Lucy and Myrtle Gunnis, Belle's daughter who died in the fire. Have they finally found Belle? Police certainly think so. They contact friends and relatives of her and show them the photograph of the so-called Esther Carlson. Every single person who sees the picture believes the woman could be Belle. Frustratingly though, detectives never get a chance to question the suspect. She dies of tuberculosis while awaiting trial. Police can guess that she may have been Belle Gunnis, but they'll never know for sure. In 2007, archeology span students from the University of Indianapolis exhume the body of the headless woman. Extracting a sample of her DNA, they hope that modern scientific testing might help them to uncover the truth. The archaeologists run the DNA sample alongside some saliva taken from an envelope seal Belle was known to have licked. If Belle died in the fire, then the DNA samples will match and the mystery be solved. But if they're different, then Ray Lamphere's deathbed confession will be proven true. Belle Gunnis had escaped. Unfortunately, the results come back as inconclusive there's not enough DNA on the envelope seal. But maybe someday, as forensic testing continues to improve, we might finally find out what happened to America's most prolific Black Widow. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Roscoe White, husband, father, former Marine and Dallas police officer. A man who served his country for years, but who harbored a dark secret, one he only spoke of when he lay dying from injuries in 1971. Roscoe White hadn't only killed for his country overseas, 
he claimed to have done it on home soil too. In a diary that surfaced years after his death, information linked White to one of the highest profile deaths of all time. President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Ramirez. You know the names, but do you know the whole terrifying story? Every Monday and Thursday on Serial Killers, take a horrific journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Some were charismatic, others were calculated, but all of them were disturbingly deadly. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.